I woke up this morning and I felt like it was Christmas. I was like, today is the day Anne tells me what I should read. I don't know what you should read. You work in a bookstore. (laughs) Who am I to say? (laughs) Hey readers, I'm Anne Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 195. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, before we get started on today's episode, I want to make sure you know that volume two of One Great Book is complete. This is my short form podcast where each week I pull one standout selection off my personal bookshelves and tell you all about it in 10 minutes or less. That means that, Perhaps unlike What Should I Read Next, you can listen to the episode and come away with one new book for your TBR instead of 11. Some readers think that's a big perk. If you haven't given it a try yet, this would be a great time to check it out. You can listen to the One Great Book episodes in any order you like. So start with last Friday's and then catch up on all the 15 books I've highlighted in volumes one and two before we begin our third volume in a few weeks. Find One Great Book wherever you're listening to this podcast at modernmrsdarcy.com slash one great book. That's O-N-E, one great book, or by clicking the link in today's show notes. Today's guest, Mary Laura Philpott, is an essayist, bookseller, and a big fan of memoirs of people living everyday lives. I'm sure many of you will be interested in her everyday life as a book enthusiast at large. Yes, that is her actual job title for Parnassus Books in Nashville. We have a fun conversation about the reading and writing life in which we work through her readerly guilt of hating beloved childhood classics, and we discuss book flights and reading symphonies. Let's get to it. Mary Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Oh, it is fun. And we've had a couple near misses on getting to talk books in person. And today we're doing it and I'm so glad. I know. I, this, is, this has been a long time coming. Oh, there's so much we get to talk about today. So you had a book, you've, you've had several books come out, but I feel like your last one was different. Yeah, technically it's the second one. So the first one was a book of cartoons, very, very different from a memoir and essay. So this one, as my mother so charitably says, this is your first real book. (laughs) (gasps) Oh, Mary Laura's mom. (laughs) We love you, but ouch. (laughs) I get what she means. This is the first one with more than like five words on a page. Well, congratulations on that. And I'm sure we'll get to talk about that in the course of the episode. But also you. you were at a bookseller. At a bookstore that lots of readers have or want to visit. Yes, Parnassus Books. It's fun to sit in the the bookseller's seat, that part of the publishing and bookselling world, and observe what people are into and kind of see the trends of of what people like and what they come looking for. How long have you been doing that? I have been there for five years now, almost exactly. And what brought you to it? Well, people can kind of read about this in my book. And I Miss You When I Blink tells a little bit the story of how I ended up in Nashville, but it was sort of a serendipitous discovery. I was visiting Nashville and I went into the store and met the people who worked there. And when I left Nashville, I wanted to stay in touch with the store because I enjoyed all the wonderful personalized recommendations. I was living in Atlanta at the time and in the part of the city where I lived, we didn't have an indie bookstore anymore. As I was leaving town, I said, how can I follow you? Do I, you know, do you have a blog? Do you have a store blog? Anything like that? And they said, no, but do you want to make us one? Because at the time I was a book blogger for Barnes and Noble. So they actually hired me away and I started working for Parnassus long distance when I still lived in Atlanta. And then after about eight or nine months, 
I moved the whole family up here. You were a book blogger for Barnes and Noble. I did not know that. Yes, back in the day. I was reading your book, I'll Miss You When I Blink, and I was reading the part about you moving from Atlanta to Nashville and how you just really needed to get out of Atlanta because it was the worst. Exactly the same moment that a dear friend of mine was moving to Atlanta. I'm like, I'm just not going to tell her to read this. At least not right now. <laughs> you know, what I always tell people is it's not about the place itself. Like when people are like, so are, are you saying that what people should do is leave Atlanta and go to Nashville? And I always say, no, leave your version of Atlanta if you are in a place that isn't right for you anymore and find your version of Nashville, which is a place that is right for you. Atlanta is a lovely city. It just wasn't the right place for me to be anymore. Well, that's a very gracious way to put that and encouraging to all our strong Southern kids. We actually have a ton of readers in the Atlanta area. I bet you do. So how long have you been working in books in some way, shape or form? I guess I was with Barnes and Noble just a year or two. And then before that, I was just, you know, go back even just a few years in sort of the blogosphere. And it was kind of the wild, wild west of people just having their own blogs and talking about books. And and I was somebody who was always posting about what I was reading on whatever platform was the big thing at the time. So, you know, even before I was doing it professionally, I was reading constantly and trying to sort of do matchmaking among my friends and among people I knew on the internet and help people find what they wanted to read. Were you one of those kids who just just knew that you wanted to grow up and work in a bookstore someday? You know, I probably should have been. It was so, <laughs> like, looking back, it's so obvious. Like, if you dial back and just stop the timeline, timeline at any point in my childhood, you see me with a book. But it never occurred to me to work in a bookstore. And it never occur- even occurred to me to be a writer. Like, I, in my mind, writers were either novelists or journalists. And I have never been somebody who writes fiction And journalism has always looked really, just really hard to me with all the research and fact-checking. It did not look fun. And I I just never assumed I would work in this world of books and writing. And, you know, now I look back and it's like, well, duh, of course you are. When I was a kid, my most well-developed adult fantasy life was me getting an apartment over a bookstore and having like my cup of coffee and books by night and my book selling by day. And yet I have never worked in a bookstore. I mean, I've been put to work in a bookstore (laughs) and really enjoyed the brief experience, but I have never drawn a paycheck from a bookstore. But you're bookstore adjacent. You may not be working in a bookstore and you may not be directly a bookseller, but you're very much a part of the, even really the book selling world, you know, because you're, you're out there doing that matchmaking. The matchmaking can happen all sorts of ways. And we are booksellers here on What Should I Read Next? Because we sell a lot of books. They just actually get rung up at Parnassus. (laughs) Exactly. So Mary Laura, you write, I'm pretty sure, everywhere. (laughs) I write every day. And if you write every day, eventually your stuff does start to show up everywhere, I guess. Essays are my thing. So I, I write essays all the time. And whenever I can, I publish them somewhere. I know I've seen you in the New York Times and the Atlantic. Yeah. And Wait, have you been in the Atlantic? No, I've never done the Atlantic. New York Times okay. is, is where I have been published the most. I, I tend to publish there a couple times a year. And that's been sort of a, you know, knock on wood, kind of a, a long run. And I've done the Washington Post several times in different sections. And then really, it's kind of been all over the place. I've published with the Paris Review. That was really fun because I, I really, really admire the Paris Review Daily, their online publication. And then once I was in Oprah's Magazine... That was good fun. Yeah, kind of all over. Real Simple is probably my latest shiny magazine publication. And I got to work with Elizabeth Seil, who is the books editor there. And she is a delightful editor to work with. 
how long have you been essaying? <laughs> essaying? I have been essaying. That means something else, doesn't it? it? Well, it means trying. If you directly translate the word essay from the, you know, the French word essaye, which means to try, that's what essays are. They're, you're, you're trying to work something out within the constraints of that form, whether it's a question or an issue or a story. And I've been writing essays forever. Even in high school, when we would be assigned essays and people would be like, oh, gross, no, an essay. I was like, yes, because something about that form just works for my brain. That's the right amount of words and space to ask a question and flail around trying to answer it and then come to some new discovery and wrap it up. So forever, really. What was the trigger that made you realize, oh, wait, this is a medium that I can work in? I remember reading an Annie Dillard essay in mm-hmm. high school and thinking, I didn't know you could write like this, at least not seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't immediately become an essayist, but it just really changed the way I understood what the writing life could be and yeah. what the reading life could be as well. It's a wonderful format. You know, before I was publishing essays under my own name in various places, I was working as a ghostwriter. So I worked in corporate communications as a youthful adult. And then when I had my children and I wanted to switch to more of a freelance lifestyle, I started doing freelance writing. And one of the things that sort of took off in that portion of my career was ghostwriting. So CEOs and business people, technology people would hire me to write op-eds about the things that they knew really, really deeply, but they didn't know how to write. So I would always say, if you can make me understand it, I can make someone else understand it. So I really got a lot of practice in that part of my career with writing in that sort of 1,200 to 1,500 word short essay format or short kind of persuasive, let's talk about this topic kind of format. And that was Mm -hmm. great practice. I would expect writing your own thoughts, writing your own essays to be very different, but is it really? It is in that you can you can sort of remove that layer of translation. So I, when I'm writing as myself, which is all I do now, but I remember in the beginning when I was kind of switching from one to the other, it was really refreshing not to have to put on someone else's voice because that's what, you know, a good ghostwriter will be undetectable in the writing because they mm-hmm. completely put on their client's voice. And it was really nice to skip that step and just write in my own voice. And, and so the momentum of writing as me really took off for me right at the beginning. I loved it. Well, here's something that sounds really challenging about being the one who needs a ghost writer. If someone else is doing the writing, then you have to do the thinking without the writing. And how do they do that? <laughs> They do it through interviews. At least that's how it always worked with me is I would sit down and interview, you know, whoever it was, let's say it's some, you know, technology genius and they want to write an op-ed about something, but they're not writers. I would sit down with them for anywhere from one hour to multiple multi-hour meetings or phone calls and interview them. And I would ask them everything I could think to ask about whatever this topic was. And they would just talk and talk and talk and talk. And people who are subject matter experts can talk on their subject matter. You know, if, if they trust me, then I can go put it into into words. And usually what would happen is I would send them a draft and they'd go, this is all great, except this part where you totally misunderstood this thing I said. And here's how, the, <laughs> here's how you really say this thing about, you know, computers or whatever and, and fix it. But yeah, this was sort of a, an interview process. And that's where you said, forget this. I'm going to write my own book. What I used to do at the very beginning of writing in my, my own voice it kind of began with a blog that I had that's not really out there anymore, but I would sit down and kind of blog about whatever popped into my own head before I switched into my clients' voices. And it was almost like a way of burning off what was in the front of my mind so that then I could get to my real work. And I just found that I was enjoying that so much more. 
dealing with what I was actually thinking about. I'm glad that has led the places it's led. How has it been having your real book out in the world? And you know, I'm saving that with heavy, heavy air quotes. (laughs) The real book. It has been such a joy. I mean, I was excited about it leading up to publication, but excited in that kind of way where you're like, what will this be like? I had so much kind of wonder and mystery around it. And it has been fantastic. The best, best part has been conversations with people and the things that people tell me. I didn't, somehow I did not expect that people would feel compelled to tell me their stories when talking about this book, but they are. I travel around and I I meet with groups of people or I speak with groups of people. And then afterwards there's a signing line and people walk up and they tell me these really, really personal things. So I feel like I've, I've made all these wonderful personal connections and it in some ways really validates what was keeping me going writing this book, which is these are conversations we need to be having mm-hmm. about our lives and about the need to reinvent our lives sometimes and how hard that is to do once you get pretty far into adulthood. And all these things that people are telling me, it's all telling me that we did need this book and we do need these conversations. And that's been just absolutely delightful. I wish I could stay on book tour forever. If I could afford it, I would stay on book tour forever. (laughs) Well, speaking of book tour, you are a person who is very much in the bookstore world. What has it been like to go out and visit those actual stores? Because you spend all your time, I would imagine, in your own bookstore. It's so fun. So for a few years, I was the social media director for Parnassus Books. So my job for a a period of years was to get on Twitter, get on Instagram, get on Facebook as the bookstore and interact with not only readers, but also other bookstores. So I felt like I had these bookstore friends all over the country, like actual bookstores that were my friends. And so getting to go and be inside those places that I've seen the pictures of. And, you know, in many cases, I know various staff members of these stores because I've met them at Winter Institute or Book Expo or various industry conferences for booksellers. So I've met some of these people, but to see them on their home turf and to see how every store really is different and every store has its own vibe and its own layout and its own personality has just been an absolute joy. Now, we're not going to play favorites, but do tell us a few stores (laughs) that it was particularly delightful to visit in person. Well, actually like three that pop right into my mind. Word Bookstores, they have a location in New Jersey, but they have a location in, in Brooklyn as well, is a spot that has always been sort of dear to my heart. I remember early on when I first started working at Parnassus and I was looking around at other bookstores' websites just to see, you know, who has a good website? What websites look nice? I remember thinking, oh, their website is beautiful. And I've always sort of admired them from afar. So it was wonderful to get to go there and sign some books. Not too far away from that is Books Are Magic, which of course is relatively new in the bookstore world in Brooklyn. And that was a dream to do an event there. You know, another one that almost feels like one of my own little bookstore homes is Avid in Athens, Georgia. I know Janet, who runs the store, and then I know some of the booksellers there, Tyler and Will, are dear friends of mine. And to get to actually be in their shop talking about the book and signing books for their customers felt like an extension of my bookstore home. But it's honestly, it's felt that way everywhere. It has just been so much fun. Did it make you see your own home turf store in a different way? 
I tell you, I've taken a lot of pictures. I was just down in Thomasville, Georgia at the bookshelf, um, which is, of course, you know, the Mm -hmm. darling little store that is run by Annie Jones. And they do a really beautiful job with their visual merchandising. Like their end cap displays, the displays at the ends of rows are really beautifully done. And I remember thinking like, oh, I need to take note of how beautiful this is and come home and show it to the people who do this at Parnassus. But yeah, I was always sort of taking notes everywhere I went. Well done, Annie Jones. Um, (laughs) Exactly. I've gotten to go to all those stores really in the past year, except for Word in Brooklyn. And now I'm disappointed I was in Brooklyn and didn't make it. Next time it's happening. It's really cute. It's tiny, but they work miracles with that space. There are so many books crammed in there and they have just brilliant staff. So definitely worth a visit. Mary Laura, what do you do at Parnassus? In your professional role, not your, oh, I did write that. I'll sign it for you role. Well, it's changing actually right now. So so for the first two or three or almost four years, I was the social media director, which if you interacted with our store online, that was actually me. And then I also ran our digital magazine, which is called Musing, which I founded when I started working there. I ran that for five years. And over the past few months, we've actually been trying to figure out what my role there is going to look like because I had to take a little book leave to go on book tour. And obviously we had to keep things going while I was gone. And we had some other staff take over the things I was doing and it has worked really well. I've also continued to book more travel and more speaking stuff into the next Mm -hmm. year. You know, my editor would like me to write some more. So I'm trying to carve out some writing time. So we're kind of moving things around at the moment. But I think, I think my current title is book enthusiast at large, which means, (laughs) which is a wonderfully fuzzy term that means I'm continuing to read like crazy, recommend books. I still contribute to Musing, the online magazine. So you'll still see me there picking staff picks every month and writing things, doing interviews with authors and that sort of stuff. And I'll still be around doing, you know, the in-conversation events that happen on our stage. So I'm still there. I'm just not there as much. So if you just walk into the store on a random Thursday, you are not likely to see me standing right there at the front, but I'm somewhere in the atmosphere and I've probably been there somewhat recently. Now here on What Should I Read Next, our mission is to put the right books in the hands or the ears of the right reader. I love that. What have you learned about doing just that from your time at Parnassus? You have to listen to what the person tells you about what they love and where they are in their lives at that moment. There's a natural tendency I think we all have to get everyone to love the same things that we love, whether that's, you know, books or any, you know, food, restaurants, whatever else. But often people are a mixed bag and often somebody will come in and either what they need or what they like is just very different from what I need or what I like. And so as a bookseller, you have to be ready to recommend things that might be a little outside your wheelhouse or to introduce that person to another bookseller who has a different specialty and can recommend different things. But the the first thing I always ask is, well, what have you read and loved lately? And I let them tell me what has really lit them up lately. And then we kind of go from there. And I'll add, that doesn't mean that I necessarily want to find them a read alike to what they have just read and loved. I do like to help people broaden their horizons and discover new things, but that gives us a place to start. If I can start with what I know you like, then I can ask you some questions about what else you might like. I'm glad you said that. I'm not wild about the term read alike for exactly that reason, because (laughs) for good books, the reading experience should be unique. It shouldn't be like any other. And although I do, I do understand why that's a useful term. 
You've advocated for the idea that no single book can be all things to all readers. I'd love to hear you expand on that. Oh, yeah. It's something I've thought about a lot just in this past season as an author. When I think about the fact that this book I wrote is out in the world and people are reading it and it's one woman's perspective, obviously. It's a memoir that is written in essay, so it's one person's life. It's one person's thoughts. I hope that people are reading it as part of a multifaceted reading life. You know, I hope no one reads it and goes, that book only had this and it didn't have, you know, all these other things that I love in other books. You know, I like to recommend books in stacks. Like I love to say, if you're looking for books on this theme or you're in this phase of life or you like to read this kind of thing, here are six different books that get at that in different ways. So I hope my book is part of kind of a reading symphony in somebody's life. I hope that's how people read in general. Like I hope you read one book and you love it. And so you go reach for something a little bit different. And then that takes you to something even a little bit different. I think that's how we broaden our horizons. Yes, absolutely. So on my blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy, a term I've been using for a long time is from the wine world. You're talking about music. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to talk about wine. Not like I actually am qualified to speak about wine, but I can talk (laughs) about books. And I do know there is such a thing as a wine flight. Yes. You deliberately pair wines that have some characteristics in common, mm-hmm. but differ in important ways because by comparing and contrasting, you elevate the experience of each individual one. But they also talk to each other and make you notice things about yes. their companions that you wouldn't otherwise. And that's what I love about having a, to mix our metaphors, a mm-hmm. symphony of books as well, as you notice things when you read together that you wouldn't in isolation. Yes. Books are better together. They are. And I love what you say about how they talk to each other. That's, I say that all the time. If you read constantly and you're always reading, then the books that you've read recently are all in conversation up in your brain. And it becomes this whole different thought experience than just reading one. It's funny. You might think that if you grouped books together, that it would depress the impact they had on you, but it's exactly the opposite. Yeah, no, they complement each other. I I think the wine metaphor is good. I don't know much about wine either, other than that I buy it in bulk and I like it. But, you know, (laughs) fancy restaurants are always saying, this is the wine that goes best with that meal you just ordered because the flavors here will bring out the flavors in that rice or whatever. So I get that. Have you seen people pair your book I'll miss you when I blink with books that have made you go, now that's an interesting pairing. I just saw the other day and I wish I could credit who this was. And I'm so sorry that I don't know. Whoever you are, if you're listening, I read your blog. You are a young woman and you're married to a guy and you're both English teachers. And come self-report in show notes because we want to hear. <laughs> yes. <and> we want to <laughs> link back. Whoever you are, someone sent me a link and it went to another link and I fell down this rabbit hole and somehow I landed at your blog, which is unusual for me because I try not to read reviews. I'm trying to sort of stay away from reading about my own book, but somehow this fell like right in front of my face. And she paired I Miss You When I Blink with Under the Tuscan Sun. And she said, these are both books. Yeah. She said, these are both books about reinventing your life in some way and taking stock of where you've gotten as an adult and what you love about your life and what you don't love and what you have to do to make it different so that you're living out the rest of your days in a way that is more satisfying. And it was truly the way she wrote about it was a lovely pairing. And whoever you are, English teacher, you did a great job. And thank you for that pairing. 
Oh, that's so fun. I've seen your book appear. Well, first of all, I have to tell you that I already jotted down one flight pick for your book in the course Ooh. of our conversation that occurred to me earlier. We might okay. circle back to that. Okay. But you put together a really excellent list for Lit Hub back in the winter mm-hmm. about memoirs of everyday lives. Oh, yeah. I wrote that last year. I, they were so nice to publish that. I'm really glad they did because that's a topic that had been like burning in my mind for a while. So I really admire any author who can, this most often comes up in fiction, but an author who can turn a regular Tuesday night dinner conversation Mm -hmm. into high drama, high stakes, change your life kind of stuff. Yeah. You talked about how it's great to read a Truth is Stranger Than Fiction memoir, Mm -hmm. but there's really a place for these books that are stories of people who don't have jaw-dropping stories or remarkable lives. I should be fair and say, I love all sorts of memoirs. I'm a huge memoir reader and I love the larger than life stories, like the ones where someone has escaped a kidnapper's lair or they've become a famous rock and roll star, whatever. I love big, larger than life, high stakes memoirs. But I also love these memoirs about the things that we all go through, the much more common experiences, because if you think about it, the stakes are high for all of us in these regular things. Friendship, marriage, illness, parenthood, all the things that we that so many of us go through, those stakes are high. And if a good writer can write about those things in a way that makes you feel how high those stakes are and makes you look at your own life a little bit differently. Do you have a few favorites? That article is a good start. The one that I lead with in that article was one that came out last year by Megan O'Connell called, And Now We Have Everything. And it's about the year that she got pregnant and had her first child. And when it was pitched to me, and I don't even remember who pitched to me, it must've been in some sort of like book sales meeting where someone was like, this is a highly anticipated new memoir. It's about a woman getting pregnant and having a baby. And I immediately assumed there must be some wild and crazy larger than life element. Like, you know, was she in college and she got accidentally pregnant? She had to decide what to do or, you know, did she get pregnant and then her husband killed a bunch of people and went to jail? Like what, you know, what's the big twist? And there isn't a big twist. She was engaged, about to get married to this great guy. They just got pregnant a little earlier than they meant to. And she had to wrap her mind around this big change happening in her life, this big permanent change. And she just writes with such candid, but really intelligent humor and introspection. And she asks these great questions. And I came away from it, you know, I'm, I'm many years past having babies. My, my kids are teenagers now, but it made me look back on that time of my life differently. It made me look at my life now differently. Just a great example to kind of jump off from in making that list. When I saw what your loves and (laughs) in your broad not love category, we'll get to that. When I saw what those were, I started thinking about the books you might enjoy reading with the qualifications you gave. My brain got to thinking about that. And then I scanned this list of your ordinary memoirs and Mm -hmm. so many of those titles were on there. Oh, good. I'm excited to jump in and hear about what you enjoy reading, Mary Laura. Are you ready to go there? Let's go. Okay, let's go. You know how this works. You are going to tell me three books you love, mm-hmm. one book you don't, and what you're reading now. And then I suppose we could try to find some books that the bookseller hasn't read for her to read next. I can't wait. So excited. I, as I've told you before, like I woke up this morning as if it were Christmas. I'm like, today is the day. Anne's going to tell me what I should read. So what do we start with? First of all, was it hard to choose your favorites? I was really impressed that you said my all-time favorite novel, my all-time favorite memoir. Do you always have answers at the ready? 
You know, lately I do because I've been asked this question a lot. People are always like, tell me one thing. If we tweak the question in any way, like if you say favorite novel about this or favorite memoir from this type of person or this kind of life, I can give you different examples for all sorts of different specific questions. And I should probably say that the the ones we're going to talk about is my all-time favorites. If they were suddenly eradicated from this world for some reason, there's another all-time favorite, I'm sure, waiting in the wings <laughs> to pop in. So... <laughs> But I tried to narrow it down. It sounds like a dystopian novel waiting to happen. Actually, this is seeming pretty appropriate if you stick with your favorite novel of all time that you submitted. Oh, I love to talk about it. It's Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. I think it's the greatest novel ever written. I mean, I read it right when it first came out years ago. I probably think about it daily. I thought about it, I swear, the other day when I went to go see Toy Story 4 with one of my kids. And I'm not going to spoil anything about the movie, but things happen to the toys. It made me think about this dystopian novel. I love a couple of things about it. Number one, I'm a sucker for a boarding school novel. So any novel set in boarding school, I'm in. And that's kind of what I thought that book was. It's what you think is going on in the book when you first start it. You think it's just a regular boarding school. You come to find out other things are happening. But I also loved that what these people were doing, these young adults and the adults in their lives were doing, was trying to prove the worth of their souls and trying to prove that they even had souls. And one of the things that they do is try to prove that creating art proves that you have a soul. I feel like if you look at any great book or any great artistic endeavor or any big change that people go through in their lives, part of what they are trying to do is prove that they deserve to be here. I love this book. I could talk about it for hours. I love the way you described it. It's also one of the very few of my favorite books that actually got made into a movie that is just about as good as the book. I haven't seen the movie. <gasps> oh, it's good. I mean, it's very true to the book. If, if you like the mood of the book and you, and you remember the plot of this book, it, it's very faithful to it. Okay. I mean, I remember being excited when I saw Carrie Mulligan, who is one of the younger Bennett sisters in mm-hmm. the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice. I was like, oh, I like her. And I like that book and I'm totally going to watch that. And I, here we are. Well, watch it and get ready to cry. Don't wear mascara. Mary Laura, you did choose for yourself. Memoir is one of your categories. Mm -hmm. Was it a contest to identify your favorite memoir of all time? It would be impossible for me to pick one favorite memoir of all the memoirs in the world. I can't do it. But I can pick one of my favorites and say it gets to represent the rest of the favorites. And that is The Year of Magical Thinking. It's perfect in so many ways, partially just because it's Joan Didion and her writing is so crystal clear and efficient, but also it's, it is so of a specific moment in her life. You know, she wrote it about that year after her husband died and it, it starts with his death and just kind of, she writes through what, she was living emotionally and situationally and you feel like you're right there. That is another one of the few books that I reread. Mary Laura, what did you choose to round out your favorites list? Okay. So for my third, I went in a totally different direction from the first two. A book that makes me laugh. I mean, it consistently makes me laugh. It doesn't matter how many times I've read it. It doesn't matter what page I open it to. And that is Hyperbole and a Half by Allie Brush. It's good to have a book like that. And I'll tell you one of the most delightful experiences of my life was when each of my children got to the age where I felt like they could read that book. 
you know, because they were little when it first came out. It's been out mm-hmm. now for a few years, but now they're teenagers. And when each of them got to the age where I was like, your mother has something special to give you. And it is my copy of Hyperbole and a Half. Aww. Hearing them laugh as hard as I laughed, that was really something. It's one of the funniest books in the entire world. And the drawings that go along with Allie's words, you know, her strange little computerized cartoons are just so evocative and they just get you right in the heart. See, I checked my copy out of the library and this is making me really sad. I can't just go grab it off the shelf because that's what happens when you talk about good books, right? Yeah, I really do return to it. So all three of these favorites that I have mentioned, even though I'm not a rereader, these are three of the very, very few that I will revisit. Mary Laura, what books have not been for you? I am currently in the process of sort of self-analysis on this subject because I know, I don't know if it means something is wrong with me. I, I don't know what it means, but a lot of things that fall into the category of classics, particularly, and I, I'm so ashamed to say this out loud, particularly children's classics, I just didn't love. And I don't know if I was the wrong age when I read them. And don't hang up on me when I say this, because this is, you're, you're going to gasp. Little women. I felt nothing when I read it. I don't know if I'm like a broken person inside or I read it when I was too little. Maybe you're supposed to read it when you're 11. And I read it when I was eight and that was too early. I remember being frustrated. I wanted it to move along. I wanted more things to happen. It frustrated me and it kind of bored me. Is that terrible? Am I a monster? First of all, when it comes to uncertainties about the reading life, it is never, ever just you. It's not just you. Look, it's really freaking long and Louisa May Alcott didn't like it either. (laughs) So that makes me feel better. I think you're in better company than you realize. (laughs) I remember reading that, that she didn't like it either. The the current theory I'm running with is that I read a lot. I read a lot of, of classic children's literature too young and therefore... I didn't have the attention span for it. Yes, nodding so hard. And it seems to me, I've we've we've touched on this briefly on the podcast before. I see a lot of schools, at least in my region, mm-hmm. promoting. We take literature seriously and we read the classics so young. And, you know, you used to read Jane Austen's a junior in high school. Well, we're going to do it in seventh grade. And I do not think that does anybody any favors. I don't either. I think it turns people off. I think if they can't connect with it because they're not the right age to be reading it, see what happens is they turn out like me and they grow up and they get on a podcast and then they have to admit to not loving something that er- that everyone else loves and they feel shame. Don't do this, teachers. And don't feel shame about the reading life. Yeah. Well, here we, we could go all Brene Brown and say like, well, there could be guilt that's going to motivate <laughs> you to cross them off your list, but shame. No. no shame. Although when you were like, Anne, this is really bad. This is really bad. This is really bad. I figured that you were going to start like dissing Jane Austen, which I would be okay with. By the way, we could have that conversation. I like Jane Austen and I like, you know, I don't, it's not like I don't like any classics. I loved Edith Wharton. Everything Edith Wharton wrote, I was into it. And those are classics. And they're way more similar to Never Let Me Go than Heidi. Yeah. Seriously. I shouldn't diss a whole category. But often, like if someone says, oh, I'm so excited. My book club is going to read all classics this year. I will just feel myself going, ooh. I think we're getting to the point where we can call the year of magical thinking a classic. So it's all relative. And Never Let Me Go, obviously, is if not a classic already, will be one. We're going to call that a modern classic for right now. But yes, it's destined for greatness. If the author wins the Nobel Prize, his novel gets to be a classic. Okay, I see what you're saying. But have you scanned the list of Pulitzer winners and been like, wait, what? Who? 
Sometimes, yes, I do have that feeling. So you will live forever on those lists, but maybe not so much in readers' hearts just right. because you won an award. Mm-hmm. Right. That happens. It's funny how awards go. Like some years I feel like the lists come out and I, and I go, yeah, those are all my favorite books from this year. And then some years the lists come out and I'm like, what? <laughs> and you're like, maybe it was a good book, but that doesn't sound interesting. I'm not going to do it. The Guardian has their annual not Booker thing going right now, which I just, which I love and think is really fun. Yeah. But classics have been a little bit fraught for you, but you're clearly not one of those people who walk in the bookstore. Cause I know this happens mm-hmm. and says, yeah, I just don't like old books by which they mean anything published more than seven years ago. No, it's not that. I, I love a lot of literary fiction, mm-hmm. right? But there is so much literary fiction that I may not even finish because it's just either not good. It's not mm-hmm. going to stand the test of time or it's not to my taste. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that like I'm lost because I'll never enjoy literary fiction. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that it's the same way with you for the classics. I think maybe something like a, a repercussion of that is that having been kind of turned off of the classics very early mm-hmm. and so many of those classics were old. So they're set a long time ago. I grew up thinking that I didn't like historical fiction. And I think that's wrong because when push comes to shove and someone really makes me read a great historical novel, I love it. I think I lost years of my reading life not reading any historical fiction because I thought, you know, I will not be able to stand a book that includes a butter churning scene when, you know, really I was just reading all that stuff too young. Mm -hmm. There's an analogy I really loved from one of my college, I think, textbooks. They were talking about something else entirely But the point was, they were saying that we expose young people Mm -hmm. to this information that matters greatly in their lives, Mm -hmm. and we do it early, and we do it often, and we do it because we think we're building them into people who will become responsible, full-fledged, admirable adults. Mm -hmm. But what we really do is inoculate them against the very things that we want them to have. Yeah. We're not actually supporting them. We're not teaching them the important things. We're preventing them from understanding the importance of the things that we're teaching them way before they're ready for them. And I feel like you've been inoculated. I fully get that. That's well said. I'm really sorry though. <laughs> I've toyed with the idea of like doing an experiment and making myself go back and read some of the classics that I think I hate because I read them too early, but I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> but then the thought of little women. Yeah, I think I'm at an age now where when I don't want to do something, I don't make myself do it. I'm not going to do it. It might make you feel better to know that in episode 164, Chelsea hated Little Women. And she <laughs> thought she thought she would get like Rotten Tomatoes thrown at her. But the show notes are full of comments that say, finally, somebody said it. Me too. Well, I'm glad that I can also speak for that population. <laughs> people who did not fully connect with Little Women. That's great. I could make a confession about how Heidi made me roll my eyes a lot, which I didn't read that until I was an adult. This is a little bit much for me. Is it because I'm in my 30s? Maybe. There's something for everyone. You know, I will say this though. My copies of both Heidi and Little Women are really pretty and look good on my bookshelves. (laughs) And they have actually been read. There you go. They serve some purpose. They do. Mary Laura, what are you reading right now? So I just recently finished reading Jamie Attenberg's upcoming novel, All This Could Be Yours. I didn't know she had a new one coming out. She does. I think it's October. It might be September, but I think it's October. And how is it? 
I really enjoyed it. It's about a family. It's one of those books where you feel like you're eavesdropping on a family and all their issues and the adult children and the parents. And you're starting to uncover kind of, okay, why did that brother turn out so messed up? Oh, because this thing happened in the past. It reminded me just a little bit of a show that my husband and I have been watching on HBO called Succession. Have you seen that show yet? No. Okay. It is complete soap opera trash, but it is so fun because it's this dysfunctional adult siblings and then their parents. And as you watch the show, you come to figure out how everybody got so messed up. It's that kind of a novel. I really enjoyed it. I think it's going to be a crowd pleaser. Now, I like her work. I admire what she does. Her last one made me deeply uncomfortable and I couldn't finish it. You're not the only person I've heard that from. So I'm seeking reassurance, really. No, I did read it and I actually, it was called All Grown Up and I actually did like it. It was a great example for me of where people always talk about, well, is the protagonist likable? She's sort of unlikable and I loved the novel for that. But I remember reading it and going, this is not going to be everybody's cup of tea. So that's okay. Something for everyone. What are you looking for in your reading life right now? I feel like what I am always looking for is that sweet spot where good literary writing overlaps with a juicy story, whether fiction or nonfiction, that holds my attention. I don't want to be bored, but I don't want to sacrifice great writing in the interest of being entertained. So I'm always, always looking for that place on the Venn diagram where there's that overlap. I am right there with you. And many readers are looking for the same thing. Great writing, great plot, not one at the expense of the other. Mm -hmm. So I have in mind not to load you up with some of the great titles I've read that are coming out in the coming months, although I would love to hear your suggestions, <laughs> but with great books that have been out a few years okay, that aren't necessarily on your to-be-read stack and won't be unless you deliberately choose them and put them there. Ooh, Okay. First, I want to go back and share the book that I was thinking of earlier when you were talking about ghostwriting. Mm -hmm. And I just finished a book where the protagonist and narrator developed her writing skills, ghostwriting. Oh. Great stories about, say, like gas and electric employees. And her best work was included with customers' utility bills in the mailers. And so when she had to put together a portfolio, she was like, well, you know, it's kind of hard to send out those little heartwarming snippets about the gas and electric employees, like saving lives in, in alleys when they stumble upon, you know, kittens that need resuscitation and whatnot. But another reason I want to mention this book is I was on book tour myself last fall and booksellers love this author. What is it? I just want to put this out there. It's The View from Penthouse B by Eleanor Lipman. I have not read it. But do you know her? Have you read her? Well, I, yeah, I know her, but I haven't read that book. It's interesting. I am aware Wait, that that hold book on, exists. hold on. And the protagonist's name is Gwen Dash Laura. What is that? Are you serious? I'm very serious. Oh my gosh. Okay, wait. I'm writing it down. The View from Penthouse B? Yes. So I've been working my way through her back catalog. Okay. The last one I read by Eleanor Littman was pressed into my hands by a bookseller at Rakestraw Books in California. But mm -hmm. this one, it came out in 2013. So it's not old, but it is definitely not brand spanking new, new release table stuff. That makes me so happy. I can't wait. Gwen Laura moves in with her sister in Penthouse B on 10th Street in Greenwich Village after her husband dies. So she's a widow. Her sister is newly divorced. Her husband was 
involved in scandal that he brought wholly upon himself that they make jokes about the whole novel. (laughs) With her half of the divorce settlement, she brought a penthouse and she invested the rest in Bernie Madoff and it is, Uh you know, gone, baby, gone. So there are jokes about that, the whole novel. So they move in together to put their lives back together again, a theme you like in your books. Although this is definitely like eyebrow, way high, tongue in cheek. You know, this is the snarky take on that. (laughs) That sounds fun. They're figuring things out again, trying to cobble together new, very different lives for themselves. And it's something I like about Eleanor Lippmann that you see consistently in her work is she does Mm -hmm. the found family, like the group of used to be strangers who come together and make this like really tight family, functioning, funny, loving unit. Oh, she does it so well. Oh, that makes me very happy. I can't wait. Excellent. Have you read Anne Leary, specifically The Good House? No. Oh, that makes me really happy. And I don't think I I know much about The Good House. Well, I will tell you. It's so good. This was amazing on audio too, if you're an audiobook person. Ooh, okay. At the heart of the story is a woman in small town, Massachusetts. She's lived there her whole life. Her ancestors lived there. Her name is Hildy Good. She's divorced fairly recently. She is a realtor. Her life's not going so well at the moment since this divorce, and she drinks. People around her think she kind of drinks a lot, but she doesn't think she has a problem. It's a quiet drama, but it doesn't mean nothing happens. It means it's one of those books about just regular people living lives in a neighborhood, nothing to write home about, except Mm -hmm. it is because the way uh, Leary builds the suspense and shows you the relationships and raises the stakes and makes you feel like why what's happening really, really matters. Ooh. So as this quiet drama unfolds around you, you're seeing it through the eyes of someone who is not trustworthy. (gasps) So what you have is an unreliable narrator where it's not a gimmick or a plot device that you see so often in domestic suspense some days. Like, ooh, sometimes I lie and you'll never know. Like she's telling you the story as she sees it the best way she can. Oh. It really works. When did this book come out? Do you remember? 2013. Okay. So we're going on seven years out in the world. Hildy helps a new client move to town. She's high end. She She's loaded. She rides horses. She has some trouble fitting in, but she starts hanging out with a local guy, which is fine until it's not. Uh-oh. And Hildy begins to know things she shouldn't and take an interest in things where her nose doesn't belong. And then if she's under the influence, well, things might happen that she wouldn't have done in better moments, but trouble ensues in a small New England town. Oh, she does such a good job at setting up the situation that looks straightforward. Oh, wait, maybe this is a little ominous. Oh, wait, hold on. This is getting, I just need to sit in the driveway listening to what happens next because I'm worried (laughs) about these people and what's going to happen next. Oh, yay. It's a great book. Leary is a literary writer who can write a completely absorbing, intricate, well-executed plot. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you. I have some travel, some more travel coming up over the next season, and it's nice to be able to take a paperback on a plane. It doesn't take up as much room and it's not as heavy. So now I have a couple of good paperbacks to grab. Well, it's only 300 pages, but it feels like you cover a lot of ground in that time. And I like a book like that that feels like like you went a long way. Mm-hmm. I do too, especially when I travel because it can distract me from the fact that I'm, you know, sitting through plane delays or whatever else is eating up my time. Something big and immersive like that is great. Have you read much by Alain de Baton? No. In my opinion, he wrote what is a really great novel in 2016 called The Course of Love. No, I completely missed it. 
That is music to my ears, Mary Laura. Okay, so he's a philosopher. Yes, I've read I've read articles and and blog posts and things like that from him. How Proust can change your life. Right. So this was my unexpected find of 2016, and I'm happy to be reviving it three years later. This is, on purpose, the story of a completely ordinary couple. I can't believe I didn't think of this sooner, because this is totally the fictional slash philosophical counterpart to your everyday memoirs. Okay. Completely ordinary couple, which could, of course, be dead boring, right? Right. Or disastrous. But what he does is he shows this couple, and a very specific couple, not not like a hypothetical couple, but he introduces you to these characters and you watch them meet. You know, it's it's not a cute way, but it's a normal way, mm-hmm. um, but not too interesting or bizarre because then that would not accomplish his purposes. You watch them meet, you watch them to begin to get to know each other, you watch them fall in love, and you watch them do things like have it out over the Ikea plates because this is what couples do. And he's trying to make a point about what love is and what our responsibilities are, which sounds dead boring, but it's not through his eyes because he's showing you real people, um, real fictional people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And real emotions and what they do and don't do that possibly ruins their lives. He makes some really interesting choices in these characters' relationships that would be amazing to discuss at book club. You'd have an incredible discussion. Something that some readers loved and some readers don't is that he mm-hmm. tells his story, the fiction, and mm-hmm. then he zooms out and he's like, let's consider what's happening here and why it matters. And his philosopher self kicks in. Uh-huh. Some readers are like, take me back to the story already. But some readers were like, oh my gosh, that made it so perfect and caused me to see not only the characters, but my own life in a meaningful way. And I'm so glad he did it that way. So you can read it and be the judge. But I think the theme he's addressing. Really, it's a completely different take about a lot of what you talk about in Mm -hmm. your memoir. Not that authors only want to read the kind of stuff they write about because it's a symphony and you want to get the whole section, but he does it in such a different way while doing things that we know you like, like making the everyday seem noteworthy. Yeah. I like this for you, The Course of Love. Oh, I'm excited. It sounds really relatable and like something I would jump right into. I hope so. Okay. So Mary Laura, of the books we talked about, The View from Penthouse B by Eleanor Lippmann, The Good House by Anne Leary, and The Course of Love by Alan de Paton, what do you think you'll read next? I mean, I want to read all three. I I think I'm leaning toward The Good House. I think that's the first one I will grab to throw in my plane bag. I love the sound of that. I can't wait to hear what you think. Thank you. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Mary Laura, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. I'd also love to hear if you knew what blog post Mary Laura mentioned that she couldn't remember where she found it. Tell us in the comments at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 195. That is also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode on your favorite podcast player or on my I Love Overcast. If you've added an echo or dot to your home, you can also listen right from those devices by saying, for example, Alexa, play the latest episode of What Should I Read Next podcast. Readers, we will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. 
our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you're not on the list, you can fix that now by visiting whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. If you enjoy this podcast, please check out our Patreon page for more at patreon.com slash what should I read next. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash what should I read next. That's where you'll get behind the scenes posts. You'll get bonus audio from both what should I read next and one great book. And you'll get your hands on the super secret spreadsheet vault of all of the books I've recommended over nearly 200 episodes. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.